Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. But welcome everybody to season two, episode 12 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, one we're calling the sale process and what to expect. The world of dental M&A is still white hot coming out of 2021. We're seeing a lot of activity in 2022, and this year promises to be another banner year in the world of M&A. So to discuss all of that in terms of process and setting expectations, I'm bringing my partner, DeWalker Sinha, behind the mic. You know it's going to be a note-taking episode to get your pad and pen ready through another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, once again, welcome everybody to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. As I teased in the introduction, I'm joined by my partner on this episode, and I will allow DeWalker to welcome everybody in as we start to discuss the sale process and what to expect. DeWalker, you want to say hello? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, so D, this is a uh, a topic that we get a lot of questions about. Um, some of it pure curiosity others um, with uh, high degrees of, of specificity. And that is the sale process and, and what uh, should be somebody's expectations as they roll through that process. We run our process a little different, uh, differently, excuse me, than um, some other M&A advisors and with good reason. And I think we've had some um, tremendous early successes on account of that. You've been the genius behind a lot of the um, the subtleties and the way that we conduct our operation as it relates to M&A. So let's start this discussion um, with a, a, maybe a bigger, more uh, mindset type of a, a point, and that is, when is the best time to sell? A- and we get that question from people who are curious around timing, um, and and how do you want to take apart or unpack for the audience this uh, this concept around the best time to go to market? Sure. I mean, I think uh, the best time to market typically, you know, if you talk to a traditional uh, transactional firm, you know, the usual feedback is now. And I think you hear that in the real estate market, that was the best time to buy a house. It's always now. And I look at it from a lens of how can that statistically be uh, true all the time? Um, So, you know, for us, when clients are asking us and saying, well, when's the best time to sell? Uh, you know, our feedback is when you're ready to have a partner, you know, when you're ready to give up uh, true control in your business and a partnership, you do give up control, you know, a parent, at Polaris, we're a partnership. And I think in a good partnership, you have to have trust in your partner. And, and, and part of that is giving up the control and under, understanding your partner is going to look out for the best interest of the business collectively with you. And I think so. That's that's a feedback. You know, uh, consistently we provide all of our prospective uh, sell side clients and current clients. Is um, you know, when you're ready to give up control, when you're ready to have a partner, you end up becoming a really good prospective partner. And a really good prospective partner 
uh, you tend to get good valuations. Um, I think if you have good sell side representation, um, you know, and you've kind of worked through the the risk analysis with your sell side firm of not just EBITDA, which is a traditional, you know, denominator people look at, but you know, the overall uh, deal structure, growth strategy, the right partner solution, work life balance, you know, all the things that go into evaluation aspect and deal negotiation aspect, um, all start with one thing: Are you ready to have a partner? Are you ready to give up control? And I think whenever those answers start to be uh, yes, you know, I'm looking for the right partner, and I think a right partner can help me get to the next level. You're ready to sell. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point um, because it's it's really something that you hear too many people talking about timing the market and taking advantage of circumstances and valuations and multiples and all that kind of stuff. And we're fortunate to work with uh, some really great clients who've built great businesses, honestly. And a great business is going to transact very highly, all but irrespective of timing. Um, and it really is the mindset um, from the owner or from the the art, uh, the partners um, around the best time, if there is such a thing. Uh, it's it, The best time is really more dependent upon you than it is any external forces. I do think uh, that leads us into a, a secondary question, um, which is, you know, a lot of people, uh, let's face it, building a group in, in a high-end solo practice is a, a very stressful endeavor. We all have, you know, peaks and valleys, highs and lows, good days and bad days. And inevitably, the, the people who run the business development offices um, for the buy side are, are tenacious about the way they pursue quality practices and quality groups. And a lot of um, the people who, are, who have built successful groups or are building them, um, consistently the phone rings, you know, or they get uh, a piece of mail talking about valuations and, and the interest in buying their business and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, these enterprise level groups are marketing machines um, that are very much sales driven by people who know what they're doing. And occasionally that'll catch uh, some of the business owners off guard. So let's talk about that direct offer or that uh, solicitation for engagement in terms of how somebody should think about reacting to it, especially when they're having a bad day. You know, if the phone rings at the wrong time, you might sell your business prematurely, so to speak. Um, how do you think through really response to that type of direct uh, engagement from the buy side? Um, I think uh, any of our audience members, if they're getting a direct offer or direct engagement, uh, what their journey looks like, I think they should you know, definitely uh, understand you know, what the opportunities look like. I think, uh, um, I think it's good to have an initial conversation on that side. Um, and beyond that, I mean, I would highly encourage, you know, the, the, you know, the sell side, you know, potential partner to uh, find an advisor that they feel is the right fit for them. And, and the reason, you know, we say that is not to drive, you know, it's for Polaris. I just think just having good representation and it allows you to navigate the process very well. And, um, for two things. One, I don't think you should go into a partnership and negotiate against your, against with your future partner on all the economic and non-economic aspects of a future partnership. I think that just tends to generally erode goodwill in, in a partnership. And that kind of goes back to my first thing, you know, which, which is, you know, best time to sell is when you're ready to have a partner. 
And when you're ready to have a partner, you want that experience to be great for you and you want that experience to be great for them. And bringing a third party in the middle allows you to freely express your goals, uh, economic and non-economic in the transaction and, and work towards a happy median in the process. So when that transaction is consummated, you know, both sides can work towards creating, you know, one have always maintained a significant level of goodwill, and now they can, you know, uh, help grow beyond that. Um, you know, on a, a deal flow perspective, you know, for many of the audience members, this might be their first deal they're doing in their life to 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 and bring in a partner. Um, I mean, they might have bought a practice on the other side or started up a practice on the other side. This is the first time they're transacting as a sell side. And, you know, transacting as a sell side is very emotional. Equity is emotional. It's their life's work. Uh, some audience member might be their second turn. And, you know, uh, so they've already kind of gone through the journey once uh, at the same level or at a smaller transaction level. And so I, I think, you know, on the buy side, they're doing anywhere from 20 to 250 of these transactions a year. So I think you're, you know, uh, you're, you definitely want to have somebody that can speak the language, that can have the conversations, uh, outline your goals in the process, and, and negotiate effectively, and you know, be able to you know uh, outline what is reasonable, what is not reasonable. And I think you know, a lot of times at our sell side, you know, we'll go to our clients, and if our clients have expectations that are not reasonable, we'll tell them, hey, that's not something that we think is reasonable, and. Um, you know, we don't think we can meet those expectations. And I don't know if that makes good, good argument to bring to the buy side. And I think that's a value add that I think a lot of buy sides value also, which is you know, when we talk to buy side companies, they value an intermediary because they feel that those deals, one, go through, have a higher likelihood of, a, of an outcome. Two, um, that, that they, they can clearly articulate their goals without creating or eroding goodwill. Um, and I think that becomes very impactful. And Yes, a marketed process and you know on an economic side truly will drive a higher outcome. Um, you know, but it's it's more than just economic outcomes, just being able to retain that goodwill to the process. And I think if you focus on the right things, the economic uh, um, you know uh, denominator is is what is always going to be impactful. Yeah, I think that the two key takeaways there that you mentioned, just to reinforce both of them is one, you know, if you're gonna if if you're gonna have a shouting match with your future partner, you'd probably rather have your representative, i.e., us, do that on your behalf versus you doing that directly. That tends to create bad blood. That's hard to overcome. That's the the most obvious point. But the secondary point is that for the people who built very successful businesses, a very successful business is going to value more highly. And if it values more highly, more than likely, it's going to be a complicated transaction structure. And you want somebody who understands all facets of that being able to think it through, because really the the we talk about structure mattering more than the multiple um, or the the sale price, uh, because there there's so many different things to consider um, around all of that and so many fine points to negotiate and, and definitely not throw away. So um, great, great points there. So let let's sort of pivot back now. And talk about, you know, the aspect of, of selling a group. How long does it take? What happens when? Let's talk a little bit about the the process and kind of 
help guide some expectations around that because it can be a very lengthy process. You want to take it from the top on that one? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, that, that answer, how long does it take? It's probably anywhere from six to nine months is you know, usually our answer. Um, now I'll be candid with the audience members. We don't rush anything. If you know, uh, We try to make sure our data room is accurate, our modeling is accurate, um, that we can defend it depending on the transaction size. <clears throat> We'll go into a QV uh, process, a third-party QV accounting firm. That'll uh, we can you know, talk further about that. Um, but it, you know, uh, the first data collection process for us uh, and modeling process for us is about sixty to maybe max ninety days, depending on the the, the data collection process. And we get you know significant amount of data uh, uh, to do it. Uh, it's fairly robust. You know, creating a pitch deck. Uh, most of our deals have a pitch deck. Not all of them have a pitch deck, um, and th they can range anywhere from five to ten pages to as high as 140 pages that we've done. Um, and that can take anywhere from you know one week to four weeks in that process. Um, and you know, a lot all of our deals have a deal timeline. Um, so what we're able to do early in the process with our client as we're onboarding him. Um, and you know, give them a forecast of data milestones we're trying to do, which is milestones of data collection, milestones of pitch deck completion, milestones of, of uh, modeling review, and um, you know, if we're going to do a sell side QV when that's going to be in process. And then throughout the process, you know, once we go to market, you know, what does that process look like? You know, IOI, LOI, um, QV diligence from a buy side perspective, QV diligence from sell side perspective, legal contracts. Um, ideally, you know, at what point we're, we're anticipating to close. So that, that process, again, um, you know, sub 10 million is probably six, six months uh, on the average um, in, in the transaction value. And, and I'm just using it as a clear, you know, you have to pick a number. Uh, and again, there's variances around it. But above 10 million, you're, you're probably closer to nine months on the average with, the, uh, with us. And I think that allows, and that's a very compressed time frame. So I mean, I think you may think nine months is a very long time. But once clients engage us and they kind of go through our deal flow process, which we timeline, um, that that nine months comes through pretty quickly, and there's a lot of work that's getting done in that process. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we try to do um, is lay out the process to the best of our ability for both our client to help manage their expectations as well as set expectations for the buy side, and and if we're, you know, in conceptual agreement, uh, for lack of a better term, um, over what's going to transpire when, it's easier to hit milestones and it's easier to manage the process. You hear the phrase deal fatigue quite often in our world. And what that means is that for people who are, uh, you know, you use the word emotional before, it is an emotional process. For those who are emotionally invested, in um, selling their business and they're thinking about the value of the transaction, what a life-changing event it's going to be and, you know, how stressful it's going to be, change and all that, you know, deal fatigue is, is when a, a deal, uh, you know, becomes cumbersome to manage and, and there are a lot of un, unmet variables that tend to take on a life of their own. And absent a timeline and commitments to manage that process through and through, deals drag on and on and on. And, and you find that the seller's mindset changes from being an emotional high to one of 
you know, capitulation almost like, can we just get the transaction closed? I'm tired. I'm worn out, you know, and that's not a good place to be. So using a timeline uh, with, with milestones and uh, detail along the process to manage everybody's expectations and, and their emotions along the way um, is, is really critically important. I think it pays a lot of benefit from what the buy side has told us and from what some of our clients have told us. So um, let's talk, uh, you mentioned sell side Q of E. Let, let's talk about some of the specifics around uh, sell side Q of E and, and why we may not be the only firm advocating for it, but I, don't, I haven't heard of any others that do. Let's talk a little bit about uh, that and, and why we think that helps with the process. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, so, so first of all, a sell side QV, uh, QV stands for quality of earnings. And most transactions, if not um, uh, all transactions, there's going to be some kind of a financial due diligence from the buy side. Um, and that could be just a simple, you know, uh, bank records review, proof of cash, you know, moving all the way up to a Q, limited to a full QV. Um, and you know, a buy side will do it, and I think it's it's they need to do it for their diligence internally. They need to do that for their bank uh, lending partner that they're going to have. A lot of these sponsors have uh, bank partners that are uh, you know uh, that they're leveraging capital on, and um, so it's it's perfectly normal process. And I think uh, what we try to tell you know our clients is one is we want to have a QB done to be able to better defend themselves ourselves in the process. Um, our our Q, our internal analysis. On a typically, you know, on the average, within five, maybe max ten percent variance uh, on a QV um, on a, on a um, um, cash basis. To uh, but when you start to go to a cash to accrual basis, uh, and a QV typically will have a cash to accrual conversion, and you start to go into specialty space of orthodontics, they can be material, right? And I think that's uh, um, that's one of the things to consider. So in a special, you know, in, in the specialty space or in a space where we're getting significant uh, 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 um, deposits or high deposits, uh, we too do want to convert from cash to accrual. Uh, the buyer's going to do it. And what it allows us to do is to have better understanding of the economics of the business uh, and how we're going to be able to strategize to defend it, uh, set expectations internally. And I think that's impactful for a buy side. You know, If we've done a QV, it gives the buy side a higher level of confidence in the offer they're making, uh, you know, we talk to buy sides all the time. One of the things that causes them uncertainty, some level of anxiety, is okay. We're receiving this sim, we're receiving this valuation from a sell side firm. Is it accurate? Uh, is there a second level of diligence on it? Um, and I think for transactions, you know, sub ten million dollars enterprise value, uh, you, one could argue either way. I mean, there's a cost aspect of it that that could be a deterrent. Once you start to get it to transaction values of 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, uh, I think uh, a investment of anywhere from you know 70 to 200 thousand dollars is very you know um, impactful you know in, in being able to defend that. Uh, lastly, I mean you know on a buy side they're going to have a you know top 25 to top 50 accounting firm that's going to have a you know audit person that's looking at the information that does QVs every single day. Uh, and again, it kind of comes down to the same argument we had earlier about you know using experts that do it every day. Uh, we want to have a you know accounting firm on our side that has an audit team that does QVs to be able to help defend the 
position with us. And that, and that it's all about creating a team around you. You know, the team around you, the right uh, sell side firm, the right legal team, uh, the right uh, accounting QV team, should that apply to you? I, I think these are all very impactful to a sell side process. Um, and, you know, really getting to an LOI for us, you know, it, it's really about 20 to 25% of the work we do as an M&A firm, really the 75% of the work that we're, you know, we are, um, uh, uh, are involved in is, is, go, is post LOI. And I think we do significant amount of work getting to an LOI phase. Um, so sell side QV is very impactful. Cost is a deterrent. Completely understand it. Uh, that being said, um, you know, you know, talk to, you know, talk to Polaris and figure out, you know, does a QV make sense for you? And if so, you know, what the estimated ranges would be for the type of business. Um, and then lastly, you know, um, you know, why is it going to be impactful for your business and sell side process? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's that preparation before going to battle, right? I mean, people who rush into the market expecting to transact their business and <clears throat> have no surprises along the way are, um, that's kind of foolhardy, honestly. And it's going on pure emotion. We would rather try to figure out where all the um, compromises need to be, where all the limitations are. We'd rather get the bad news out before we go to market. So we can sit down with the client and say, okay, here's what the Q of E returned. Here's what our analysis says. Here's where we think we're going to have some problems. What do we want to do about it? Versus going to market, having the Q of E done by the buy side, and then having to play defense against it and essentially retrading the deal after being in market for several months. That's really a bad place to be. Um, it hardly ever uh, works out in the client's favor in that type of a scenario. I can think of only once where it did, but uh, I'm sure there are others. But in any event, I, I think it's, it's another way that we strive to manage our clients' expectations uh, around the process, around how it's going to unfold, different deal points, points of negotiation, um, and really be prepared for that. Um, and if we can manage that, it's a smoother process for all parties, and hopefully it yields the uh, the value in the transaction um, uh, at the end of the process too. So uh, beyond sell-side Q of E or Q of E's in general, um, let's talk about uh, indications of interest and letters of interest, IOI and LOI. These are two terms that uh, occur fairly early on in the process. Do you want to dissect those or take them apart at a high level? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, uh, traditionally, when you go through process, um, you know what more, most most people are used to is just a letter of intent, and we clearly see that in some of our transactions. While some buy side firms will do a letter of intent. Um, that being said, you know our process and our process communication to the buy side um, does talk about an IOI and an LOI phase, and I think an IOI allows us to both parties, the uh, our client um, and the buy side, to determine if the initial valuation deal structures within the expectations of the client before um, people invest more time to issue an LOI. LOIs tend to be more formal; they tend to have some signatures around it. Uh, LOIs tend to have board approval from most companies, uh, significant efforts put into making sure that the LOI, uh, rightfully so, is, is, a, is done in good faith. Not that IOIs are not, uh, but I think IOIs, you know, there's internal discussion, people go through the process, 
and understand that from there, they're going to have to move to an LOI if there's mutual interest on both sides. So in our process, you know, when we go to market, we initially look for an IOI. Um, and that IOI is al- allows us to determine if uh, and have, you know, real conversations with the buy side to see if the valuations, again, in market, the deal structures in market to the client's expectations. And then from there to an on-site meeting, uh, then to a final LOI. So uh, again, we're, we're not, you know, communicating a transaction to 200 different different buy sides. Our, our process, you know, although we have a very robust database and Rolodex, uh, we tend to be a little more surgical in our approach um, and, you know, figure out the, you know, based on our clients' goals, what's the right buy side partners for them. And then from there, you know, work through a limited marketed process to bring in an IOI to an LOI. Got it, got it. And then the the last uh, term um, that we throw around a good bit is due diligence process, um, and and that is post LOI, um, probably along some level of exclusivity, even. Uh, and you know the due diligence process could involve a quality of earnings uh, report or proof of cash, like we mentioned before, but it involves a lot more than that from an operational, uh, clinical, and financial um, considerations. You want to dive into any of those aspects as well? Uh, yeah, the due diligence process, um, again, in the total deal time, as we discussed earlier, six to nine months on the average, the due diligence process is probably 50% of that. Um, so it's, it's a significant amount of time you're spending into it. So in a nine-month deal, you're probably four months in due diligence to five months in due diligence. In a six-month, you're at least three months in due diligence. Uh, and so that assumes the first three months is data collection, going to market, LOI, IOI, all those things. So, um, and the closing is you know, typically within you know one week of you know come, working through all the legal and uh, financial aspects of the transaction. Um, so the, the the due diligence process initially after an accepted LOI will will go into uh, initial kickoff call with the, either a QV firm or a, um, a internal a financial diligence team. And concurrently, we're you know working towards the legal process, um, any integration issues, onboarding, kicking off, you know, setting expectations, uh, different milestones in the process. Um, the financial due diligence process typically takes anywhere from 30 days to about 60 days, um, maybe 75 days, depending on the size of the transaction and complexity of the transaction, number of locations. Uh, and then the concurrently, what we try to do is work towards a legal process um, um, that's going to run usually 30 to 45 days into the um, financial diligence process. So it has a little bit of an overlap, but we're working a good faith to kind of get into the financial diligence, make sure we're on the same page as far as what the documents we need. And, um, you know, whereas as some firms, they might want to complete the full financial due diligence before going into legal, uh, we tend to get, you know, push both parties to get into legal usually about two to four weeks before uh, a QV or financial diligence completes. So there's a little bit of overlap and usually about two to four weeks after the financial diligence completed QVs issued or, um, you know, we're, we're wrapping up APs and employment agreements, leases, um, reps, warrants, all the different things, aspects of the legal aspect. And from there, you know, again, we're going to um, a closing waterfall um, and we're, we're updating waterfalls throughout the process a closing waterfall to a closing process. Excellent. Excellent. Last piece on the closing process. Um, do we want to talk about a uh, soft close here, um, you know, versus uh, uh, the finality, the, the official close piece of it, just to 
kind of prep people for that mindset? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, most of the buy sides, I think people may, may not have heard the term called the soft closing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's when a buyer has typically worked with the economic uh, diligence or financial diligence. QV's done. We're probably finalized on an APA, uh, might be working through some employment uh, contracts or some side agreements that we need to just uh, finish out. Or we might be in the home stretch of an APA. Um, and both parties are working towards a good faith of being into a transaction or partnership you know, within two to three weeks. Uh, so typically, you know, again, in our deal flow, we, we create a timeline. And about two to three weeks before closing, uh, max four weeks, but two to two to three weeks before closing, uh, there's going to be the you know the the soft closing where the buyer is going to work work on a strategy with you to you know announce to the team that there's they're going to be you know uh, become a partner with you. Uh, you know they're going to talk about the pros uh, as far as benefits. You know how there's going to be should be minimal disruption to the business. If anything, there should be a value add to the business. Uh, answer any questions and really come in and you know uh, uh, take take some of that anxiety away one from you as a, a perspective you know as a partner but also from your team I mean it's it's they're gonna have a a new company that's gonna be in a, in a backing them a new employer backing them and it's gonna be you know life changing for them as well you know as, you know as far as things that are gonna be changing and um, that's typically typically very standard so we we work through. So the legal, most of the legal aspects, if not all of it, financial diligence typically uh, completed. Economic waterfall has been agreed upon, um, and then we're just working towards and, and and that soft closing. And then from that soft closing is really the integration aspect of it, which is you know making sure payroll, healthcare, credit card terminals, you know all this, these you know, the the nuances. Uh, you know looking at ARs and patient credits. You know it's kind of finalizing those things right all the way to closing. Um, and then from there, you're you're going towards an actual transaction date. Uh, the transaction date is really the closing date, but you know, the soft closing for us is the closing. And I think that we try to get a lot of parties to get comfortable with that. Um, you know, you don't want to just you know day after say, well, we have a new partner. You want there to be a soft integration in that, and that's a that's a positive thing for all. Wow, this was a <laughs> this is a whale of an episode. Um, honestly. I mean, I think our audience uh, expects a lot out of us when it comes to detail and guidance and specificity and things like that. It's it's part of what has earned us some accolades in terms of our overall content library, certainly on the podcast. But I think today, for those who are contemplating uh, potentially entering um, uh, a marketed sales process, I don't think we left out too much detail. There's obviously a lot more that happens uh, that we couldn't put into um, a, a, a normal podcast episode, but suffice to say, this uh, is a pretty deep dive into the overall sale process and uh, and what to expect. So job well done to Walker. I really appreciate you uh, joining me on the show today. And obviously I hope that everybody in our audience has found this to be educational and informative. Um, and, you know, if you've got further questions, uh, feel free to submit them to either me or to Walker. You can always reach me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. And DeWalker is DeWalker at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show.
Once again, my sincere thanks to my partner, DeWalker Sinha, for joining me on the show today. He is always a wealth of information. And like I, I said, um, I think today's episode is high on the uh, degree of specificity. Uh, and I hope that you all got a lot out of it, um, especially those that are contemplating potentially going to market the process, expectations, all that kind of jazz really gave you a lot of meat on today's episode. And uh, I, I hope that you find that uh, that helpful. Um, before we wrap up the show today, um, I wanted to uh, talk about our masterclass sessions. I've talked about this a decent amount. I've gotten some questions lately on it um, as, as it relates to like what the format is. And, and let me take just a step back because I think where we are right now is we're starting to see more conferences, summits, seminars, you know, um, gatherings uh, across the U.S. And, and I've seen some uh, advertised as late as Q4. So people are really um, advertising them well in advance. Those things are great. It's good to get together. You get a survey of information. Um, but I think that most of the information you get in any of that format is what I would call light on details. Um, and it has to be, right? They're trying to draw a wide audience, a lot of people there to break even on the conference or make some money. And they have to provide a lot of subject matter that hits a lot of different points for a lot of different people at different stages of their journey. You know, I don't, I don't begrudge that at all. It's casting a wider net for more people. That is not <laughs> what a masterclass is. We took the 180 degree opposite approach, honestly. Um, working with emerging group practices along their journey to some level of success. Um, we really tried to look at who our target client is and the challenges they have and really boil down into its essence, a course, a class, a deep dive, um, you know, that it would be a, a small intimate group and it would be a very, very narrow subject matter. And we've got six or eight of these things scoped, you know, and, and the uh, mergers, acquisitions and affiliations was the first one. And uh, de novo execution was the second one that we did last week. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that, too. Um, but suffice to say, if you want to go to, you know, some large city and have a, a large format conference uh, that can be a lot of fun, entertaining and, and light on details in terms of how to apply it when you get home, there, there are plenty of those to choose from. On the other hand, if you're really focused on growing your business and executing at a high level, a masterclass is probably a lot more intense environment. You're going to get a lot more from it. It's more costly than it is to attend one of those survey types of uh, summits or seminars. Uh, but suffice to say, we give you a lot of actionable items to apply when you get home. Uh, and we bring in um, a few industry experts to support us along the way in that masterclass. So the format is really about 10 people or, or fewer, honestly. We don't want that many people in a room because we wanna create and stimulate high interaction amongst the group. And then the subject matter is obviously a very deep dive with a number of handouts, um, models and things like that, um, that really do provide a lot of specificity and hopefully a lot of clarity in terms of the way you approach that subject matter. Mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations was our first one. The vast majority of emerging groups are growing through acquisitions, so the subject matter is near and dear to most people. And honestly, what we've seen in working with clients, they're 
there are a lot of people that get acquisitions wrong um, and they either overpay or they underdeliver on the um, expected promise of the business they acquired or there were things along the way that you know they didn't realize, stepped on a landmine and frankly made mistakes at it. Uh, if you're borrowing money from the bank, the bank will get paid as we like to say, but you may not. So it's really important to understand how to um, go about making acquisitions and doing it from an equity perspective. We cover all of that in the mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations course. But we also cover um, prospecting and business development. If you are buying practices listed by a broker, you're late in the game and you can't afford to do that. You need to plant seeds ahead of time, building a pipeline, courting potential sellers before they're ready to sell, is of paramount importance and working that process consistently over a long period of time is what business development is all about. So we, we really unpack that at the beginning of the course. Um, like I say, it's a, it's a course that is uh, heavy on specifics and details and the, the response that we've gotten from that one in particular is tremendous. We did the de novo execution course last week and it was also very highly received. De novo execution, there are fewer groups growing through de novo. I get it. It's scary, right? I mean, it takes a while to build a de novo. You're borrowing money from the bank. Um, there's a lot of process to coordinate. It takes a while for it to bake. Once you open it up, you're not sure how to gauge success or how to how to quantify it, how to model it, how to how to set an ROI number. Like, what is ROI? Is it operational break even? Is it uh, equity break even? Is it uh, free cash flow break even? Is it a million dollars in revenue? Like, what is success in a de novo? That scares a lot of people off. We broke down the entire endeavor from site selection uh, to lease negotiation, working with a contractor, how to build out operatories, how not to build out operatories, um, how to build a budget, how to run a process and, and do project management. Um, how to build a pro forma over 12 months to create an equity break-even that will allow you to draw upon more funds from your bank to do it all over again. And I really think DeWalker and I are huge fans of the de novo model, as you've heard me say before, but I really think based on some of the input from the ADA's webinar last week, that after we go through the next probably two, possibly three years of a lot of uh, senior dentists selling their business and exiting the profession, there's gonna be a little bit of a lull and, and probably M&A activity overall will come back down to earth. And I think uh, it's rational to conclude that we're gonna see more of the de novo model emerging. And I think if you're not considering de novo as part of your growth strategy uh, and you plan to be in, in you know, business operating your group for the next five to 10 years, if you're not considering de novo to be part of your strategy, uh, you're completely missing the boat from a, a strategic planning standpoint. You owe it to yourself to to learn about that. And if it's a it's a if it's a dual strategy of some limited acquisitions and some limited de novo, there's a lot of merit in that. So the two courses that we've got coming up, April 21 and 22, uh, that's again on mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations. May 12th and 13th is going to be de novo execution once again. Um, I encourage you to look into them more closely. Uh, seats are limited. Um, we've already started getting signups uh, for both and we haven't even started marketing them yet. So please do 
uh, reach out to us. Uh, we'll try to link to them in the show notes, but reach out to me specifically. If you've got questions on them, happy to answer any of that. And obviously we'd love to have you join us. Uh, so far we are 10 out of 10 as it relates to our net promoter scores. We haven't had anything below a 10 out of 10 yet. Uh, and we've had quite a number of people uh, rate and review us. So we appreciate their quality feedback. Your peers are saying that the information is very well received and um, excited about what we've created so far. Like I say, hope to have you join us at some point soon. Today's episode was a lot of fun. And if you're getting a lot of value out of our podcast, please do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps in the show ratings. And if you've got questions, feel free to submit them to me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. You never know when I might read one and answer it on an upcoming episode. And of course, you can find out more about who we are and what we do on our website at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We will see you on the next episode.